welcome everybody to uh, the next episode of uh, the complete Stanley Kubrick. This is episode seven, and we are going to be talking about Doctor Strangelove, or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. I'm here as usual with Travis Nathan Trudell, and I added your middle name this time because TNT. I feel like you would be on the plane in this movie. You know, it would make perfect sense, right? I mean, all <laughs> the other names are so uh, so very specific to this movie that it, I should. Yeah, I'm a bomb. I'm ready to go off. Uh, <laughs> How are you feeling this week? You ready for this? I'm I'm ready. This is this is this our halfway episode? This is the this is our halfway episode. Yeah, um, he made 13 movies, so we have six in the, behind us in the rearview mirror, and we have six coming up in the future. So this is it. This is the the hinge upon which Stanley Kubrick's career rests, uh, and it's also kind of like the movie. I feel like the the from here on out, they're all icons, right? I mean these these are these are all major major movies. I mean he made some some pretty good movies before this, but this is uh, this is the one where he started to become uh, Stanley Kubrick. Would you uh, agree with that? I would agree one hundred percent. I think this is. This is the movie. This is the beginning of his career for most uh, most people who know him by name, um, but haven't delved deep into all of his other works. I think this is this is where he became Big Stan. Indeed, yeah. And uh, joining us today, we have a we have a guest who's been super quiet during our introduction period, which was which was very very nice. But now you can speak. I'm allowing you to speak. Who are you? You're John Lobinger. How are you doing, John? I- Hello. Yes, I'm hiding here in the shadows <laughs> with, with my one black glove on. Although it's very difficult to drink my coffee with uh, the the uh, one black glove on, both because I'm afraid I'm going to spill it, but also because, you know, my one hand keeps on trying to take control. <laughs> yeah, and for listeners at home, uh, I can confer- confirm that he does literally have one black glove on. <laughs> he, he came with props. He is... Uh, He's the carrot top of the complete Stanley Kubrick. Here. I'm, I'm. Hey, I, w- <laughs> I preferred Peter Sellers, but uh, I guess we're, I guess we're degenerating pretty quickly. Yeah, actually, I was thinking about just, I was thinking about not having you guys on this episode, and I was just going to do all three parts for the podcast. Um, so why don't you uh, tell people a little bit about yourself, John? Sure. So I. Uh... I am, uh, I do the Film Baby Film podcast, and while Matt, I don't think you and I have ever been on a podcast together, this is Travis the first and time. I, yeah, that's what I was thinking. You and I have chatted a lot, both uh, both in our online movie groups, but also just uh, uh, side to side, and we've met a couple of times in real life. Actually, we saw Barry Lyndon together over at the MFA. We did, yes. And um, but Travis and I have done a few episodes together, and uh, we have lots of mutual friends. Uh, so we sort of run in the same movie online circles. Um, but yeah, I, I do I do a podcast, Film Baby Film, and I've I've been a guest on several other podcasts, several other great podcasts, and uh, I am very excited to talk Kubrick today. What I think is interesting. Uh, and I realized this getting ready to come on to this podcast is uh, Stanley, Kub- Stanley Kubrick is the first guy that I knew as a guy. Like even before I knew what the auteur theory was, he was the first person when I was in my teens 
where I set out his movies as an artist that I wanted to watch his movies. Mm, yeah, I think that uh, is pretty common. Um, I, I don't really remember who the first first one I realized was, but he's definitely up there in terms of, you know, a, a Stanley Kubrick film kind of thing. Um, do you remember the, because uh, we usually go through the, uh, the, the the Kubrick history with each of our guests. Do you remember the, the first one you saw and kind of how your uh, relationship to him has evolved over over time? 100%. It was, and I don't remember what age, but just thinking about it is, is making the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I was downstairs when I think I was 12 in my house, and we lived in the woods, and we had a wooden console TV, and I turned on the wooden console TV to TV 38, and there was a ball rolling down a hallway, <laughs> and then two twins. And I immediately, I saw that, I shut off the TV, I went upstairs, and I knew that whatever I had just seen was the scariest thing I'd ever seen in my life without seeing any blood or gore. I told my mother about it. She told me that I had seen The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then a few months later, when uh, some uh, I joined the eighth grade football team, a few players, we got together for a sleepover, and I suggested we rent The Shining. The beginning of the viewing of The Shining, we were on four separate couches. By the end of it, you had four 13-year-old males cuddling together on one couch, <laughs> terrified to go to the bathroom and, and close the door by ourselves. So that is my history. That, that was the introduction. The only So I then went into the Clockwork Orange, which I had totally the wrong response to it because when I went to class, I told my... Uh, told my ninth grade English teacher, Miss Mantell, that I thought it was hilarious. Uh, or maybe that's the right reaction. Maybe you're supposed to view it comically. And she was ter- she was mortified. She said that that was not the reaction I was supposed to have to that movie. And then I saw Eyes Wide Shut in the movie theater. And uh, with my with my se- senior high school, with my girlfriend, and I, I disliked it so much I got a migraine. <laughs> Which is the second time, because you and I have talked about another movie where that has happened. That is only That was the first time of two where I've received migraines from watching long, arduous films. So that is my <laughs> history. That was my introduction to Stanley Kubrick. You, you rank films on the scale of, of migraine to no migraine. <laughs> or I guess no, to, to migraine goes away. If, you, if a film can make the migraine go away, then it's a masterpiece. Absolutely. <laughs> so is it like in the nurse's office where they hold up the uh, happy faces and tell ask what level of pain you're in? That's your rating scale for movies. <laughs> if yeah, movie definitely if it if it doesn't give me massive physical pain, that is that is a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, uh, this is um, Doctor Strangelove. Um, this movie is based on the book Red Alert, uh, and I think it's probably one of the most famous. Kubrick anecdotes out there the idea that he set out to write this as a serious thriller but as he began to write it he realized that uh, it was actually funny and so he kind of leaned into the comedy in the script uh, and then uh, brought in uh, Terry Southern uh, who was a a sort of parody slash journalist uh, at the time um, to uh, punch it up and uh, he actually, um, the reason why Peter Sellers uh, 
is plays three roles in this film was because that was how Columbia allowed him to make the movie. They agreed to bankroll the film if Peter Sellers would star in it and play multiple roles. And he, uh, another famous anecdote is that he was originally going to be uh, four roles in the film. Uh, he was going to be the pilot that Slim Pickens plays. Um, there's not much background to this movie because it was a pretty smooth ride for Kubrick uh, after Lolita was successful. So he, he kind of just eased into this. Um, we'll get into a few of the other things uh, as we go, but um, the we might as well just start with uh, initial takes on the film and we'll start with our guest. I really enjoyed it. I um I don't remember if I'd seen this movie like a long time ago, but I definitely saw it I saw it for the first time recently when I first got the Criterion Collection Blu-ray and um and it's 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 interesting. I love Peter Sellers, but the thing that sells me in this movie is always Sterling Hayden's performance as General Ripper. Yeah. And you know, now I've seen this movie probably I think four times recently and I just watched it again last night and I still laugh every single time he starts talking about purity of bodily <laughs> fluids and, and purity of essence. Every single time he makes, he makes me laugh and it's, I'm, I, I'm just blown away by that part of it. And I think that's, I think that's a testament to how awesome Sterling Hayden is. Also, I think it's pretty well known that that's like uh a lot of Terry Southern's touch, but so that so that's the first thing that jumps at me is just how great Sterling Hayden is. Peter Sellers, obviously, uh, excellent again. Uh, but I think also the I really like the visual style of this movie, particularly whenever they're in the war room. Yeah, that Ken Adam set is amazing, and it feels so cavernous, and it feels like th this um, this terrific bomb shelter. Uh, poker room, war room, mashup, and um, and I just uh, I I I I'm really taken with the visual geometry of that setting every single time I see it. Uh, there's a lot to like about this movie. I'm definitely a fan. Yeah, the the war room is um, it's both kind of super abstract and uh mysterious but it's also just so kind of it fits so perfectly with the kind of uh sprawling realism of the 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 premise that you know Ed, and reagan uh when he became president came in and, and asked to see the the first one the first things he did was to ask to see the war room um so i think that shows you just how like believable people felt this was <laughs> um <laughs> Travis, um, how 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 did you feel about Strange Love this time around? Uh, it is as relevant today as it was back then. Uh, I think it's a it's it's hilarious. It's hilarious because I think Kubrick was right. I think the only way it's uh, the idea of total world annihilation is so unimaginable that you can't take it with a straight face. You have to you have to use it and make sure that it's shown that there's some sort of ridiculousness to the whole, you know, how farcical the whole thing can be. And I 
I find this movie funnier and funnier every time. Uh, it's all the little things that that uh, just pop in, pop out. Uh, the names, people's names, the the war room itself, like I, it looks like something out of a Bond movie. Um, you know, which is very apropos because uh, you know the set designer also did the set design for Doctor No and stuff like that. But just that concept that. There's this room, this dark, cavernous space where all the world's decisions are made, especially when it comes to the fate of the world, is uh, is super amusing to me. And, uh, you know, John was just saying that it's uh, Sterling Hayden's performance he looks at, and everyone talks about uh, Peter Sellers, but it's George C. Scott for me. Oh, my God. The, the just like constant just feeding himself gum and his high energy and he gets so excited about how well the military is working to the point to our deficit where it's like oh that's gonna be great these things could fly so low they're never gonna be caught and everyone he realizes the how horrible that's gonna be in the long run for them and then uh, you know dials it back again but man his energy is just fantastic um, I heard he very he was very unhappy with the performance because he felt like uh you know Kubrick kept on needling him to go bigger and bigger and bigger and you know the place where he thought he did his best were takes that Kubrick never used he always used the biggest take that he thought he was the most buffoonish or oafish and i just i disagree his energy he's he's never been more appealing to me than in that role yeah he's really great in the role um, it, it's interesting because I think Sterling Hayden's performance has aged uh, much better in terms of the style of humor that's popular today. Um, a lot more straight face, dry. You know, he's he's essentially doing a um, an airplane role. You know, yeah. an airplane. The studio wanted them to cast all of these. Um, funny men like Dom DeLuise and people like that to be in the film. And they said, no, we want, we want straight actors, people who are dramatic, known for their dramatic roles to perform this thriller as a thriller in straight and straight faced. And I think that looking back on it now seems supernatural, but was actually kind of a revolutionary thing at the time. But I think Dr. Strangelove did that first. And I think, uh, Sterling Hayden's performance is the perfect example of that. That mm. said, George C. Scott is so funny, and I think if you get in the mindset of sort of what worked at the time and sort of how it came across, he's a great foil to the rest of the cast, and in particular, Peter Sellers as the president, who's playing it completely straight, although he's very very funny I mean particularly in that phone se- the phone scene with the oh, man, with the uh, awesome. Dimitri um, but I, I think that aspect of it he, he just he he does it so perfectly that it works for me and it's funny um, and th- this is true of my experience of watching this movie uh, this time in general I in my mind I had imagined that he was playing it even bigger than he actually is like I thought he was kind of I remembered it, even though I've seen this movie probably 20 times, I remembered it as being more over the top than it actually is. Um, he's still believable, I think, in this role. He's not he, He's not so... He's not playing it so big that he becomes a caricature, and I think that aspect of it just is worth 
talking about in general with this movie because I think it's it still remains shot like a thriller. He shot the movie very much like he would have shot it if it was a serious film. And I think that aspect of it really makes it work. If it had just gone straight into a bumbling comedy, it wouldn't have nearly the same impact both in terms of what it's saying and in terms of the humor. And yeah, I mean, I I love this film and uh, I hadn't seen it in quite a while and did kind of wonder if I would have the same response to it as I had had previously. Um, because I do think this movie appeals to you even more when you are a teenager. And I'll, I'll get into that more as we go. But I think it's just so perfect for for people who are kind of first becoming politically and socially conscious uh, of the world around them. And I think uh, in my mind, I had it pegged as maybe a little bit less complex than it is. Um, and just watching it, there's just, there, there's so much here. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's a really fun movie to watch, uh, despite the fact that it's about the uh, it's about something that's a pretty much as dark as you can get, which is the the end of humanity as we know it. You know, it's it's interesting. The movie I think is like you said, Matt is pretty famous for the uh, the dueling scripts at the beginning, where it was you know essentially uh, Kubrick w- had like a serious script and this right. funnier script, uh, the the nightmare comedy script that eventually made it into the that became the movie. But I think the other part of it is just how much of the movie was left on the cutting room floor. Uh, just, you know, uh, the different decisions that were made in the editing room. I think pretty famously they decided not to include the the pie fight at the end. Um, uh, but I think the other thing is I, I, when, I, when I was reading about this, I was curious to see how the movie would work if Buck Turgidson had been the serious George C. Scott. Um, and so I, that's the, that's the, even more than I think the, uh, the, uh, the whipped cream pie fight. I think that's the, the version of the movie I'd have been curious to see if there were like alternative versions on, uh, on the Criterion Collection disc. I would definitely, I would definitely want to see what the movie's like if George C. Scott gets to play his dramatic role probably closer to the way that, uh, General Ripper was. I would almost feel like it would be more sinister. I mean, that's like, the things he's saying, unless they're done in such a uh, uh, a ridiculous way, you know his his speech about acceptable losses of twenty million lives. Tops, like the way yeah. he delivers that is like it's so kind of like look at me, mom, a good boy. This is a way better solution than anything. If it was delivered in a, in a very serious, dramatic way. Oh, it's almost like a supervillain talk. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm. We're not going to get our hair mussed a little. <laughs> yeah, hair mussed a little. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, and this. I think that's a good transition to uh, the the the. There were dueling scripts. There were also dueling films at the time. There was a movie called Failsafe that Sidney Lumet made. Um, at this was developing at the same time that Kubrick was developing Doctor Strangelove, and. Uh, Kubrick actually convinced Peter George, uh, the author of Red Alert, to uh, sue the author of Failsafe, uh, the book that the the other movie was based on, uh, for plagiarism in order to get that film delayed until after 
Doctor Strangelove had played in theaters. And if you watch Failsafe, uh, it's it's completely straight. There's no it, the the film is almost completely devoid of humor. And if you watch uh, that film, uh, the Walter Matthau character in that film is kind of uh, the George C. Scott character, but played completely straight. And he is a complete sociopath. Um, you know, it just the the definition of um, bureaucracy or intellectual uh, theory divorced entirely from humanity and from morality in any way. Um, because they, this thought process has convinced people that there's, um, there's no other alternative, but to, you know, essentially have nuclear war of one way or another, that, that the end game of all of this, uh, is inevitable. Um, and that was a terrifying idea in 1964 because they just had the Cuban Missile Crisis. There, the Cold War was still very much alive and well, um, and so you know th this was a this was a terrifying prospect, and that it's discussed quite a bit in um, reviews at the time. Um, I think probably the most famous is uh, Bosley uh, Crowler. I always say his name wrong. Um, the uh, head New York Times critic who basically just thought the film was disgusting and uh, <laughs> even wrote a second article uh, afterwards because he felt like he didn't insult Kubrick's film enough um, and just thought it was the most <laughs> dangerous movie and uh, because not necessarily even because of the blackness of the um idea of ending a film with uh, nuclear war this is almost the scariest part of what he of what he wrote because he wasn't as much offended by that as he was by the way the military was depicted and so it's this perception the fear is more important to him than what actually happens you you have to convince people that the military knows what they're doing that they are above any sort of human frailty and that they, you know, will, will guide us home and win this one, you know, for all of us and, uh, keep America great again. And it's really, uh, uh, the response to this film is really, uh, indicative of the sort of mindset of just like, you know, these people are in power and they're because they're in power because they're in power they know what they're doing and so we have to just let them do what they're doing and then we don't have to worry about our our safety or our children's safety and we can just assume that uh everything will be okay which is exactly the point of i think even more so than making making it palatable uh, a movie about nuclear warfare i think the more important part of what Kubrick does by making this a black comedy is it does exactly that it undercuts our confidence that um, that the U.S. government and U.S. military can handle this situation that mutually assured destruction is totally an okay scenario and we can all go about our day to day because you know uh, mommy and daddy are taking care of us I think what he's doing here is he's saying that is absolutely not the case and it's interesting reading the history of that time period um the early 60s and particularly the kennedy administration were like 
what you read when you read about this time period is just how close we came to nuclear annihilation. Everybody knows about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that was really scary. What people might not know about is like um, there was, you know, different instances like one where uh, a B-52 bomber broke up over North Carolina, and there were four fail-safes to make sure that that bomb didn't explode by accident. And it was down to the very final failsafe, which was essentially a switch. And the, the B-52 broke up over North Carolina. And when Robert McNamara came in and sort of uh, did the research on it, he said essentially we were like, we were one toggle switch away from destroying a major part of the eastern seaboard. And stuff like that was happening all the time. And even probably even scarier was that there were people pretty high up in the U.S. command who against President Kennedy's wishes were taking actions that were intended to provoke um, nuclear war with the USSR. So essentially what you do when you look at that time is that you realize there were like a few, there were like a thousand people or fewer on the US side and a thousand people or fewer on the USSR side who were in charge of whether or not we go to nuclear war with the president and the premier um, you know, being the head two guys. But at a certain point, some of that responsibility becomes diffused. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I think Kubrick is right to say you these are people. These are not infallible gods. Like, we should be very skeptical of allowing fallible people, uh, you know, to, to have their finger on the trigger. And I think black comedy is the perfect way to do that. Oh yeah, I mean the movie's super. It's punk rock in its aesthetics, in which you you're, you're holding up this system as something that is wrong and should be questioned, questioning all that authority. And it's important because if you do go to the blind faith and everything is going to be fine, the people we've elected are going to take care of us. You know, we're we're being very naive and childish in those in regards to that. And, you know, I guess that one toggle switch away from, nuke, uh, you know, the eastern seaboard, eastern seaboard being nuked, I mean, that, that thought right there kind of really defines what type of person you are. You know, one person's like, dude, we were one toggle switch away from destroying ourselves, and the other person is, yeah, see, we did it the right way. We, we have those fail-safes in line. We're all safe. They're taking good care of us. And that is a really big... Uh, you know, shift in terms of thinking. And, you know, this movie, I can see at that time period, the, uh, you know, the, to use the parlance of the time, the squares would consider this movie to be like blasphemous because of its, uh, the nature of its questioning of authority and using those people, especially in regards to the whole undercurrent throughout the film, which is basically, uh, you know, you know, once again, we go back to the Kubrick triangle of of interest, uh, death, power, and sex. And you know, this whole movie has the undercurrent of this whole thing is is started and is going to be the end of us because a man has felt like his sexuality has been challenged and that he doesn't have the for the uh, the virility he used to have, and he believes it's because, and then he's goes to the most 
bizarre conclusion possible that the Russians are trying to sap him of his essence and cause him to not be as potent in bed as he wishes to be or he used to be. Is that that bizarre, though? I mean, I guess I wonder, like, in 1964... When you are a general who has spent their the, the the past two decades being told waking up every day trying to figure out how to beat the Russians, and then all of a sudden you can't get an erection, you might be like, oh well, this must be one of those other Russian pl- plots again. Well, me. I guess I guess I should say bizarre to people who right. aren't <laughs> that concerned about those types of things. But it fits. You know? in, I mean, I think it fits in so well with with the with the 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 thinking in the world at that time and i definitely want to get into the sexual aspect of of this film but i i do want to uh mention like this is kind of what i was talking about in terms of how this film really appeals to to teenagers i i mean this movie is basically all about how adults are bullshit (laughs) yeah and and i mean it's very much like a a realization or you know i think as you become older you realize that that's the case and a film like this that shows you that it knows that that's the case and is not lying to you is very very appealing um you know in in that way and i think um that aspect of it um can't kind of be overstated just how powerful of a message that is and how timeless it is and you know another thing i think uh, it's important to discuss with this movie is just how relevant it is today and you know what a total disaster American politics is right now and that aspect of it hasn't always been true since this movie was released um, but beneath the surface of those very kind of topical and real things related to the American military to people in power to uh, the, the, the prospect of nuclear war, which is much more real now than it has been probably at any point uh, in our lifetimes. Um, this is still a relevant movie in the, in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s before uh, we had a crazy person who could start nuclear war. And, you know, I mean, there are generals right now talking to each other, figuring out how they're going to stop the president from starting a nuclear war. Like, are they going to tackle him? Are they? Gonna, I mean, this is a real. This is really happening I right mean, now. Senator Senator Markey, we're all in Massachusetts right now. Senator Markey from our is like a co-signer on a bill to make it so that the president of the United States can't uh, launch a preemptive nuclear strike. Right. Right. And I mean, yeah. this is real considerations. It is, that, it's uh, real. Yeah. But even beyond those things, before this was true, this movie still, I think, was relevant because similar to Paths of Glory, which was not just an anti-war film, um, this is not just an anti-nuclear film. This is, again, a movie about men in power and the elements of the personality that it takes to be in power. that will ultimately lead to all of our downfalls. And I think that aspect of it is timeless. And I think that's really what sets this apart from a movie like Failsafe, which, uh, you know, the, the, the reason why the uh, nuclear situation happens in Failsafe is uh, th- an error in machines. And the, 
the basic idea of Failsafe is almost the opposite of this movie because this movie is ultimately about how the 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 negative aspects of humanity will uh, lead to nuclear war and Failsafe is almost about how we as humans are so unable to uh, go forward with something like nuclear war that we will leave it up to machines or to the processes that we've put in place because we don't want nobody wants to be responsible for dropping that that bomb and so once we have abdicated all responsibility then we're in a situation where we're at the whim of these uh inhuman uh elements and the the idea that it's humanity that is the problem is so much more true and so and so consistently yeah. important of a point to make about the government about war about uh ultimately just about adults <laughs> that that they are bullshit and <laughs> and and yeah cuz at the end of failsafe isn't it humanity that stops it because someone decides not to go through with the mission uh, I haven't seen no. it in a long time. No. I can't. It's, no. no, no, I, I won't. I won't get. I won't give it away because I All do right. think people should watch Failsafe, but that is not the case. Okay, no. it was been. It's been a long time, and I might confuse it with something else. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the machines. You know, the, the idea of uh, leaving it up to machines and that'll be the problem. No, it's it's going to be humanity. And even if we leave it up to machines, hum, humans are the ones who program the machines. So it'll still be an overall humanity's fault no matter what. And you're absolutely right. Like uh, this this film, uh, there's so many direct lines and correlations you can make between what's going on in this film and now. I mean, one of my favorite little... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, sections is uh, when uh, Keenan Wynn uh, Bat Guano is uh, is you know taking Peter Sellers uh, at gunpoint trying to lead him out and he won't listen to reason because he's doing what he's supposed to be doing and you know he uses and uh, Peter Sellers as uh, as uh, Lieutenant Mandrake uh, you know uses all of his reasoning and logic as a military person to get this guy to finally listen to him you know, hey, you're supposed to carry out this mission. I'm I'm now in charge because this guy is dead. So honestly, I'm the one who should be talking to the president now. And, you know, he gets him going that. But the one thing he needs is for this guy to damage some private property to get some money to save the world. And he's so unwilling to damage this <laughs> private machine. property, yeah. which is which is the number one complaint that I I just I bristle at so heavily Whenever I hear this complaint about uh, protest movements or, you know, that turn into uh, like escalate into violence is this whole like, oh, well, they were fine until they started destroying all those storefronts. And it's like, well, that's the thing. Like sometimes you have to destroy for you to get the, the message across to save this thing. And, you know, that's a perfect example of that. Like, this idea that, like, private property is more valuable than human life. And that's that's one of those problems that I see constantly 
in Facebook and social media and other people's reporting of like, oh, well, we can't take these people seriously anymore. They burnt those storefronts down. So they've destroyed private property. So they're not to be taken seriously anymore because their message is one of violence, which sometimes you have to have that violence to be able to get your message across, which, you know, there's two opposing schools of thoughts to this. But I think Private property can be rebuilt, it can be fixed, it can be maintained, it can be made better again. Human life sometimes can't be because of you know the nature of what it is that most people are being fighting for, which is to be recognized and not be oppressed and, and you know which once again we go back to uh, you know all of these white men in power making all these decisions for the rest of us based upon their proclivities or their preversions, if you will, which <laughs> yeah. he also takes a big uh, problem with. Yeah, I mean, the national media doesn't show up in a inner city when they're having a community meeting about self-policing non, you know, violent acts. Like, the, there's a reason why uh, people resort to this. As Martin Luther King said, like, this is the voice of the unheard. Um, and, you know, as much as you don't want riots to happen, like, it's still important for you to look at why they're happening and um, most people don't riot unless they're in a situation where their own worlds are being destroyed uh, at the time um, and yeah I mean the, the, I think the private property uh, thing just sort of cuts back to the the idea of just assuming that the the power structure is going to work itself out you know that the the uh the the guy says you'll have to answer to the coca-cola company i mean <laughs> like it, here's this military guy they're in the middle of like a firefight that he just basically attacked his own base and he's i mean he should have figured out something is going on there um and yet he's uh you know he's worried about what this famous uh corporation is going to do if he shoots out one of their machines on a military base to get some change to call the president well i think uh there's a bunch there first of all Bakwano is awesome he's probably my second favorite character in the in the movie even though he just has a small part um yeah i think uh I think in terms of in terms of political relevance today, I found this great uh, note. So Kubrick was like like Leonardo da Vinci, and that he took like copious notes and has uh, copious papers um, from the production of his movies. And so one of the notes that he has about making Doctor Strange of is just a, a like four words: Toynbee challenge and response. And essentially, that's the philosophy of. Uh, uh, British historian uh, and uh, it says this it says civilizations collapse when leaders no longer respond creatively to challenges instead resorting to nationalism xenophobia militarism and protecting the interests of a despotic elite he maintained that such civilizations die from suicide not murder um, so I don't think it would be too much of a stretch for somebody to connect that to some of the recent political stuff. Not to get too political, but that's... Oh, no, uh, we, we're going to get political. Those are his notes. <laughs> super political. I mean, this movie yeah, is, is so, so relevant today. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can't help but, but laugh at, at how relevant it is because it's just a total disaster. And, uh, yeah, and, and 
I think the scariest part of what we're living through right now is that it's way more ridiculous and absurd than anything Kubrick imagined in this film. I mean, I, I don't even know what Kubrick would think of what is going on in this country well, because, right now. You know, I think you're totally right because he has they had a more ridiculous sellers as president he had a more ridiculous version of that and he right. decided to play it straight laced because he said we need at least one normal human being in the room that the audience can project themselves onto so in other words even in his darkest most like nightmarish comedy scenario uh you know in his his uh marijuana induced haze Kubrick couldn't imagine a scenario where it's the president who has lost his mind. Right. Uh, where it's the president who is uh, who is essentially General Ripper. Um, and I think I think yeah I think if he were I think he would be totally incapacitated. <laughs> if he were if if Stanley were alive right now I think he would look at the news and be totally incapacitated. <laughs> you know realizing what a scary situation that is. Yeah, and really, he's the. I mean, the Peter Sellers, the the president that he plays, is is the the only elected person in this movie. Like the, in a way, you're you're placing your faith in in the people. And I mean, he's not uh, necessarily effective. Um, he's more of just kind of it, it's it's his lack of kind of emotion in a way that is his downfall uh, in the film. But he's still, you know, at least providing uh, realistic responses to these things. I mean, probably my favorite line uh, in the, in this movie is uh, when the when George C. Scott is trying to explain Turgidson uh, Tur is trying to explain uh, how many people are going to die uh, if they, you know, do this. It's going to be twenty million tops. Uh, Peter Sellers says, I'm not going to go down in history as the largest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler. And George C. Scott says, well, I really don't think, you, I think you should be more concerned with the American people than how you're going to go down in history. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, <clears throat> that's the thing, like, that I, that line to me, or that section to me, that conversation that happens in the war room, the first conversation, that's where this movie moves, like, because one of the things we haven't talked about is uh, the comedic arc of this film. Um, it doesn't start off like right away as this is funny. Like right. it builds and it starts to turn that screw and, and, and add that dark, dark humor. Like it, you know, upon rewatching it, you can see the groundwork for the humor coming in, but it's that conversation there in which, the switch flips and it starts to progressively get more um, just ridiculous in terms of the discussions, the conversations, the uh, just everything until it crescendos to Slim Pickens riding his bomb down to you know you know to the to the earth you know and it's I that conversation is always one of my favorites because that is when it starts to turn and you start to laugh out loud at just like. Oh my God! I can't believe this is a conversation they're having, and you just see George C. Scott pounding that Wrigley's gum in his mouth, <laughs> just uh, sitting with his book that says, uh, uh, "Was it the Megadeths? Uh, his guidebook for Megadeths, so, uh, world targets in Megadeths." 
you know, just it's there in the foreground, so big and large, and the fact that there's a book that you would refer to about that, that it was considered and made, is just also just so ridiculously comical that uh, uh, it's it's great. Like I can't, it's hard to it's hard to describe to other people the level of humor that this movie has in it because it is such a specific brand of humor that you know some people don't find this movie funny at all and this movie is a definite uh it is a definite uh, uh signifier of what kind of person you are if you find any humor in this but most of it is uncomfortable humor that's why i wonder uh you know when you were talking about the uh the, the article by Bosley Crowther or whatever his name is um about how much he he was disappointed in the film and how angry he was at it you know, I I would wonder how many people, and I'm sure a lot of counterculture people, really love this movie in terms of the. I always, I'm always one of those people that is laughing at the most inopportune times because humor is my release for any kind of pain. Right. <laughs> so I wonder how many people like saw this movie and were able to finally breathe out after holding their breaths during the whole entire Cuban Missile Crisis and wondering if this is the end and if this movie was a release for so many people to just finally be able to breathe out and laugh and be able to move forward from that traumatic event that had taken place because that's how I always that's how I see this film as a way to kind of like say all this stuff is really fucked up in the world you can't put your faith in anyone you can only just embrace the ridiculous and just laugh because sometimes that's, that's the only option you have. Yeah, I guess I wonder, uh, I definitely saw this movie as um, a very cynical film when I was a, uh, a teenager and very cynical myself. Uh, and I mean this cynicism in the in the. Uh, modern sense of uh, just everybody's ridiculous and uh, you know you just have to take the world as ridiculous um, I do wonder if there's a reason why you make this movie if it's just to point out how ridiculous everybody is and Kubrick has said you know his intention with the film and and as I read, by the way, as I read more Kubrick interviews uh, as we're going through this, I s stop believing him entirely. <laughs> like, mm. I think a lot of what he said sometimes was in response to the response of the film as opposed to what he perhaps intended with the film. Um, and sometimes is not always um, relevant to uh, the, the actual film itself. Um, but he was very clear on this movie that his intention was to change things. And, and the idea of what he was doing was to show how dangerous this is and how ridiculous everything is becoming in order for people to sort of wake up and realize that, um, they should be doing something about it and you look at a it's funny because you look at a film like failsafe that took a serious route and at one or two points in the film 
Henry Fonda, who plays the president, is basically looking into the camera saying, like, we have to come up with a better way to do this. Like, it's very didactic. Um, and that asp that approach didn't change anything any more than Strangelove did. And I do wonder sometimes if what you're talking about uh, in terms of laughing at something as a way of release or as a way of working through the your difficult feelings about something um is dismissed a lot easier than a, a straight-faced uh dramatic presentation of the exact same concepts do you what do you why do you guys think that is that you can make basically the same point in these two films one is a comedy a, a black comedy and one is a uh, straight-faced drama and people will immediately criticize the comedy for not having any answers only asking questions not uh you know uh not taking things uh in a um in a mature fashion um and ultimately not changing anything the idea that this film came out it was a big success but we continued to have nuclear weapons and continued to have a cold war for another almost 25 years. Um, what is it about this that's, that, that, that is open to the kind of criticism that art can generate that a, a, a similar film that's dramatic is not open to that same criticism? So I'd like to take a stab at this first. Uh, so I watched Failsafe last night. Um, I'll tell you, it's interesting because I was never terrified watching Dr. Strangelove. And while I think Dr. Strangelove is a classic movie, and I do not think Failsafe is, I can tell you the Walter Matthau character, particularly in um, in Failsafe, yeah. the guy who basically plays like the Dr. Strangelove nuclear uh, priest or Jack Ripper type or whatever, he... Um, he terrified me. There were times where he was talking, and I knew from reading up on Dr. Strangelove that these were conversations that would genuinely happen. There were certain people who would genuinely say these sorts of uh, rationalizations about nuclear war. When he said it, absolutely terrified. When Dr. Strangelove says these things or Jack Ripper says them, I laugh. And um, so, so there certainly was like a difference in how I experienced the movie at the time even though Dr. Strangelove is like an infinitely better movie. But at the same time, I'd like to take issue with the idea that the movie didn't necessarily change anything. I mean, to some extent, I, I, was, I was reading about this recently, um, when, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Obama's inauguration, when Cheney showed up in black gloves and had to like be in a wheelchair um, because something had happened, maybe it was a recent heart surgery or whatever, people pointed out in the news that he looked like this strange Lovian character. And I think to some extent, uh, when people think of the Cold War and people think of uh, nuclear holocaust, they don't think about failsafe. The iconography of Dr. Strangelove is like a part of the, the social consciousness about how, how we think about nuclear war. That's I true. Think to some, I think to some extent, Kubrick is right, we, I, I literally forgotten everything that I had learned in my Kennedy through film class about 
how close we came to nuclear war until I started reading back up about this movie because you cannot operate in your day-to-day life thinking about the fact that we are all sitting on the precipice of nuclear annihilation. I live in a major city. I literally cannot think of it. Um, It would paralyze me to be able to just do normal things. Similar thing, you know, when uh, when when after 9-11, when people started thinking about terrorism, you just you can't think about this stuff every day. But we still need to think about it as voters and as uh, as people that are members of a democracy about how we want to approach these sorts of things. The war is too important to leave up to the generals and the politicians to sort of crib off of a line from the movie. They should be left up to the normal human beings who are going to lose their families and their life, you know, and their lives if uh, if people mess up. And so I think that Strange Love is actually really effective. This movie only made like nine million dollars. It, it was a success because it cost two million to make and it made like ten million dollars and it was a big success for Kubrick. But it, it wasn't like everybody saw this movie right away. But yet my fourth grade teacher was telling me about Dr. Strangelove when I was a kid. Because this is, to some extent, how Americans talk to themselves about, about uh, this period in the Cold War where it was much closer to a hot war. You know, where the Russians were, I think during the Berlin crisis, the Russians were doing a nuclear uh, bomb test every day. Um, in a different part of the world. So I can't think about that. And I had blocked that part out, but I've never forgotten Peter Sellers' hand trying to strangle himself. <laughs> and I'm never, I'm, you know, I'm ne- nobody can forget that. No. So I don't, I, I guess I take a little, I don't know. I'm getting all fired up. This movie fires me up. It's good. It's good that it fires you up. I mean, I think, I think we go back to just how we learn things anyway. When we are when we are preached at or talked down to or given the message straight, we generally have the sense that we can either take it or leave it. And that's, and that's unfortunately kind of true with lots of educational standards is, uh, you know, look at all the people that, uh, miss, misinterpret information nowadays, uh, when things are left, uh, to, you know, this idea of facts, with like something like failsafe, where you're talking directly at the audience that we must do something to stop this, it's like being told only you can prevent forest fires. You're kind of sitting there going, "Yeah, but there's other people that'll prevent forest fires." Like I'm not really going to prevent forest fires, but with something like Strange Love, um, and it's the same way that when I teach when I teach my classes, you know, I always think about what sucked about school for me, and I need to be the opposite of that. And one of the things I use is I use humor to get points across. And with Strange Love, using humor to get a point across, but also what you were saying earlier, Matt, with leaving you with questions instead of answers, questions make you think more. And having people left with this uh, quest to find an answer is how things get changed. And I think that's that's more important. I think some of the some of the best films in history are ones that leave us uh, in a place in which we want to know more about something, someone, or a concept or an idea that we can explore after the film start, stops rolling. It's, the, it's a lot of the message pictures that we talk about nowadays. Most of those message pictures are on the Hallmark Channel nowadays. They're talking directly to you, to the audience, and they're not 
leaving you questioning anything anymore. And I think that's that's super important. I think that's why this movie stands the test of time. As as we've now noticed going into our seventh Kubrick film, he's working in so many higher concept ideas and questions that are true about humanity, um, that are questions that every human has to face in some form or another, whether it's our own death, annihilation, what is right, what is morally good. Um, he's working under these high concepts that constantly having us has us, the audience, question these things about ourselves or about our world when we leave, as opposed to these message pictures, which try to wrap it up for you, which really never never is satisfying because then you feel like you're being lectured to, I think. I think your point, Travis, about questions versus answers is very well put. Um, and actually, it did remind me of, of Schindler's List versus Shoa, where Shoa has so many questions and is constantly challenging um, and has a very particular point of view. And Schindler's List is basically just uh, like a billboard to raise awareness about the Holocaust, um, which as a, as a uh, public service message is very nice, but as a work of art, I think that it's uh, rather empty. And, and I think Failsafe has a bit of that in it. Um, it feels like it was perfect for the time that it was released, but looking back on it now, it doesn't really speak to, 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 to today. And when you ask questions, they're usually in great art, timeless questions that are not going to be answered by the passage of time or by the evolution of uh, society's perceptions of those issues. Um, and I think that's where strange love uh, becomes timeless. Um, there's a few a few big things that I want to still talk about. Um, you know, I, I think one aspect that really makes the satire work in this movie is how much technical research Kubrick did and how much this film feels when you remove the the humor and sort of the outsized personalities of it, how much this film feels just as accurate of a representation of the kind of military chain of command as failsafe does or as 100 you know and, and i think that aspect of it really sells the comedy because without that stuff it would start to feel ridiculous in in uh in a way that was not um believable and i think with satire you always have to have that undercurrent of truth to mm. uh really suss out the um, the believability of the humor that you're delivering. You know, in yeah. the in the trinity of uh, sex, power, and death, we're really just talking about the death part. I can't wait till we talk more about the sex part. <laughs> Let's do that right now because I, I was I was no. dilly dallying around the nuclear war. Um. <laughs> well, one, one thing before we move on to the sex thing, I think supporting that idea is the scene where. Um, you know, Ripper knows what he's doing is starting starting the ball rolling for annihilation, and he wants that. He's it's that idea of like you know shit or get off the pot. I'm tired of being tense about this. Let's just be done with it. You yeah. know that concept that you have that people have, and I think the perfect scene that kind of that shows that is 
He makes the phone call. He says, this is what we're doing. He enacts the plans. And then he shuts all of his blinds. Like he's closing himself off to the world because he doesn't want to see the reality of what he's set into motion. Yeah. And that's that's all that's all that's the most terrifying thing. It's the closing your eyes, plugging your ears, and pushing the button because I don't want to deal with the outcome, but I wanna I just wanna just be have it be done with. And that's kinda like, you know, you know, holding your nose and taking your medicine. That's just it's that it's that it's that horrible concept. And when he shuts those blinds in his office, he's he's saying, Okay, what's done is done and I'm not gonna watch what's gonna happen. Because otherwise, I might lose the nerve. It's like that. Uh, I can't remember who said this would be a great way to be a nuclear deterrent. Was to uh, you know lock the lock the lock the button behind a box, and have a person, a citizen, swallow the key. And the only way that you can get to the key to open the box is to kill this person, cut them open, and tear it out of them. And then you can go press the button because you would you would have to go through so many steps of questioning your own humanity and and morals before you can do something as non moralistic as just quickly hitting a button. You know, I hit that. okay. I can I can make up any excuse in my mind as what is has and what has happened and what will happen from this moment on. And I can detach myself from the act of being a mechanical motion versus the visceral just uh, horror of having to face your own morality by having to kill this human being and tear them apart to get to the thing that you need to do this other really horrible act. Um, I can't remember. Someone came up with that thought experiment. I'm pretty sure it was David Cronenberg. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh... Yeah, and it was Let's, James Woods that had to swallow the key. Well, he luckily, but you could just reach inside of him and grab it very easily. He had a very convenient <laughs> slot. Or you could just wait for them to go to the bathroom. That would also <laughs> would be painful for them. But uh, yeah, well, thank you for that image. <laughs> hey, no problem. Let's talk about sex. <laughs> Good foreplay. Uh, yeah. Um, so obviously, we got a lot of. We got a lot of sex jokes in here. All the names are sexual references. Um, you know, from from even Jack D. Ripper, you know, he was a sexual criminal. Um, Mandrake is a, uh, a sexual arousal, uh, a way of sexual arousal. Um, it's like an herb, a root. Uh, muffler, is it Muffler? Who's the no Muffley? Muffley, Merkin yeah, Muffley, is the president. Merkin Muffley, yeah. Merkin, um, and uh, temporary pubic hair Merkin. Yeah, um, and so uh, then there's also also the the idea that he the reason this happened is because he was impotent, uh, and uh, they're reading Playboy on the uh, on the plane, which is a model who is. Uh, at the same time, uh, waiting in um, General Turgidson's uh, Turgidson's office, sunning herself. Um, who, by the way, is um, Carol Reed's daughter, the director. Um, and was she, was she an actress, or was it something that Kubrick just she wanted was a to model. put in his? Okay, yeah, she's great in that scene. By the way, um, oh, she's he's awesome. Yelling at uh, you know at, at her the his, his instructions, and she's translating them into. Uh, 
polite discussion. Um, she's just perfect, uh, perfect delivery. But also very familiar with Jeffrey over the phone. Yeah. Hey, Jeffrey. Is she literally the only female in this movie? I'm trying she to go is. through it in my she head, is. and I think she is actually the only female. She's the only female. She is both a secretary and a naked girl in a magazine. With foreign affairs covering her ass. Right. And, Which uh, is great. And, yeah, and George C. Scott res- respects her as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to make her the Mrs. Mrs. Buck, Buck Turgidson. Mrs. Turgidson. And, of course, and of course it's, the Playboy is called the Bikini Issue. And as everybody knows, oh, all those tests were yeah. done over the Bikini Atoll. So it's, yeah, they're definitely, they're definitely going for it here. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, the most famous uh, sexual reference in the film uh, is uh, Slim Pickens riding the uh, nuclear warhead into Russia, um, perched, you know, uh, between his legs uh, as he calls out as if he's riding a bull. Uh, and uh, it's just a, a big giant penis that he's shoving into the USSR uh, to end us all mother Russia. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's a big shot of release and then a bunch of sober men smoke cigarettes and talk about how they can get laid next. So I guess my, my question about this is, um, and I don't have an answer to this. I don't have an opinion one way or the other necessarily, but I'm curious what you guys think. Is this stuff there? Um, to underscore the other thematic elements of the movie, the uh, idea that these of ridiculing these men in power, essentially, um, or is it there as kind of a uh, its own sort of connection to the issues of death in the film and. Uh, using those the that connection in a kind of irreverent very sort of classically early 60s kind of sense of humor way does that make sense what i'm saying yeah go ahead john so i think it's both (laughs) (laughs) i think i think the i think the idea of combining sex and death or uh sex and megadeths here (laughs) is um it's both it is childish i mean i think i think kubrick genuinely has like the 10 year old or or 14 year old boy sense of humor um and you know would have been very at home watching like game of thrones and seeing you know seeing uh torture and 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 uh naked women and just like totally getting off on it i think he had that element i think it also was a genuine uh, I think he I think it's pretty clear that he is a Freudian. And so he was thinking about, you know, sort of right. Eros and Thanatos. And like that was a genuine intellectual concern. And it wasn't just him. Uh, you know, there's I, I read somewhere Aldous Huxley had a had a um, a novel. Uh, it was really abstract. But the name of the novel was Ape and Essence. And it was the same. There were other people that were doing these sexualized comedies about nuclear war and so this wasn't just it wasn't just totally made up and totally goofy um it was something that people were thinking about and i don't know i do 
you know, I do to some extent buy that there is some connection, that it isn't just a, a libido drive. There's also like a death drive in people. And uh, I think that's not all people are complicated, but I do. I think there is some there is some connection to this weird toxic masculinity and warfare. And, uh, you know, I, I'm familiar with gun culture. And I do think that gun culture is like Freudian in some sense. Uh, the emotional connection that people have to guns or to war, it does feel sexual at times. And so, I don't know. It, I think it's the range. And I think at times I look at this and I'm like, this is silly. Why would he do this? But at other times I actually do think it, it works on some sense. But you know what? I'm a middle-aged white male. Maybe that's just, maybe I'm just a sucker for this sort of thing. Maybe I've never outgrown, you know, Kurt Vonnegut um, uh, from when I was a teenager. Yeah, well, I wonder, too, like, the, you know, this was an era when they were able to, to get away with a lot more of those references than they would have in, uh, in the past. And there's definitely lots of sort of sexual humor from before this. Um, but it does have this kind of, um, well, it's a different kind of power than we're, we've talked about here, but it has a, a sort of power that I think in our, in our era of R-rated comedies uh, has been lost in, to a significant degree. Um, so even in, in its child, most, most childish form, it still ties into the kind of thumbing your nose at power and control that, um, that Kubrick was intending uh, with the film. So, you know, in that regard, it's harder to see in our era that connection um, than it was at that time. Like it was, it was more obvious to people. I think that that would be a natural connection. What do you think, Travis? Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, I think that the, uh, you know, the humor is the all the references are there intentionally. You know, he 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 like John said, he is a Freudian, and I think I think he he took a lot of the things he couldn't do or say or the level of jokes that he wanted to probably put into Lolita and was able to go full-fledged and let it all loose on this film because I do think that his natural state of humor is that of, you know, giggling at the childish funny things, but I also think it 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 it's there to kind of show how childish these adults are in terms of what they consider important and what they consider cool or what they consider, um, you know, the thing they need to focus on because really it is a bunch of big babies fighting over things. And then, you know, to go to take that analogy to the end, you know, it's, it's, it's only when someone says that, Hey, we can completely get rid of the monogamy and just have like freeform sex in caves again, you know, and then the death of everyone becomes more palatable to everyone because it's like, oh, wait a second. So we could just be banging in the caves with anyone we want because we have to repopulate the earth. Okay, well, this, you know, this whole end of the world thing seems like it could be okay, which, you know... (laughs) If you want to take it to the extreme, you could easily tie that into why, uh, you know, suicide bombers are willing to blow themselves and other people up to go to some place with 17 virgins. Um, 
you know, it's that same concept. It's this idea of sexual gratification and the abandonment of all social norms when it comes to sex as a reward for devastation. It's, it's, it's so fucked up. Do you think they make it, by the way? Do you guys think, like, it, or did, were they just not in time and the whole world blows up? I do. I think, I think the U.S. government makes it and they end up down in those bomb shelters. Because because the war room is built to appear like, you know, after um, I guess after nine eleven when they were talking about like people go to a secure location, like it it's made to feel like while they're in the war room they're protected from nuclear fallout and are able to, then like go into the into the mine shafts and perpetuate the mine and and prevent a mine shaft gap. <laughs> yeah, with the Russians, which is one of the which is one of the great lines at towards the end of the movie when he's like, "There's gonna be a mine shaft gap." Yeah, well, and it's a callback to the Doomsday Gap earlier. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So continue the cycle begins anew. You know. Is there uh, anything else that you guys want to uh, touch on? No, I think we talked about everybody dying and uh, you know missiles <laughs> as penises. I feel like we've pretty much nailed it. Yeah, I, the the use of music is fantastic in this film. It's very uh, you know, the Johnny comes marching home with the soldiers and we have the uh the sexual intercourse between the planes at the beginning and then the uh the will meet again at the end is very uh Yes, which became <laughs> a which which was revived as a hit from this movie, which I love. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, this uh he picked he you know he picked this this song and it became it like started to to chart again um because of this movie oh man it was brought it's brought such back a from the dead it's such a uh it's such a fantastic song with all those images and uh yeah it's it just it just adds that another level yeah of ridiculousness and i, I really love the use of the march uh for the plane like it's so hyper serious um that it becomes ridiculous um and yeah and the, the way the plane is shot is also really great um you know it's uh it's almost like um well it's just, it's a particular kind of camera i can't remember what it is but it's it's these wide angles but it allows you to shoot really close and not be distorted um and it yep. makes everything just so claustrophobic in there um and in when you compare it with the war room obviously which is just this big open space that seems to stretch into a infinity um it, you know it kind of remi it reminded me of the juxtaposition um with the the mansion and the trenches in paths of mm. glory um and this you know idea of just being cut off from all decisions and yet you're the ones that are on the front lines uh, trying to, uh, you know, make this thing happen yeah. and, and, you know, win the war. Yeah, he uses his camera really well in that situation because he starts to develop a language of uh, zoom-ins, which at first it's used kind of like once or twice to zoom in on something important. And then as as it progresses, they zoom in on everything, which starts to become ridiculous. Yeah. Like, everything's important. Every single button here is something that could, you know, be close to our death. And then, you know, it's this, the other thing that I really, that we didn't, we didn't, we touched on a little bit, we didn't talk about is this, uh, the concept of, you know, this southern Texan 
we're going to ride this thing out to the bitter end because that's what we've been told to do and we're American and we don't give up, which is the cause of our destruction right. is we're not willing to step back and stop and think about what we're doing. It's just that drive home to keep it going to the point where even the plane is saying like, no, I'm not going to release these bombs. Like I'm uh, the doors are broken. Let's just stop this. Every, every fail safe they have to try to make it happen is saying no. And he has to go out there and just beat it into submission until it lets loose this payload. Right. And if they had lost so much gas, they, would have tried to go to one of their targets and been shot down probably by the Russians because they were waiting for them, but they went to a completely different place because they weren't able to make yeah. their targets. And if he wasn't such a uh, a good pilot, he wouldn't have you know missed that missile the way he did. And it's just so many. It's that aspect of like American sticktoiveness that has caused our destruction, our unwillingness to us uh, to. To, to step back and allow something else to happen or to question authority or to question what's going on. It's, uh, it's really, uh, it's really interesting. And I think that's, that's, it's very telling that he keeps his cowboy hat in a safe is, uh, <laughs> only in emergencies will I pull this hat out and I will just completely go, go for it. I won't uh, allow anything else to uh, stand in my way. That American frontierism of just the uh, blindly driving forward destroying everything in your way to get to your objective (laughs) um one thing actually that uh we didn't talk about uh that i think is something that we can talk about as we go through kubrick's stuff but i think is really apparent in this film is the the disparity between the perception of kubrick as somebody who is a perfectionist and plans everything out to the finest detail and never makes any sort of uh, deviation from his perfect plan uh, and, you know, is basically a machine. Uh, And the actual process that he used to make films, which was, I'm going to uh, have a script and I'm going to have tons of research done so I know the issue and I know exactly the movie that I want to end up with at the end but the way I get there so basically he knew the beginning and he knew the end of his process but the way that he gets there is completely unplanned in a way you know he sets up everything he makes the decisions that he wants to make at the beginning and he hires the people that he thinks are going to be right for those decisions but then he allows them a lot of leeway, um, to improvise beyond the script, certainly improvise in delivery, if not in the words that they're saying, um, to, uh, you know, um, develop uh, ideas for how to shoot scenes. Um, you know, the camera operator is interviewed on the, um, on the disc, the Criterion disc, talking about how there were certain scenes that, uh, they were his idea where to put the camera and how to shoot it. Um, and was constantly asking for opinions from other people and, t- and way- taking them under consideration. And if he liked them, he went with them and he didn't care where it came from. Um, and this comes from pretty much everybody who worked with him, that he was very interested in hearing what, how they wanted to um, approach uh, the scenes, particularly on this movie. 
Um, and I th- and I think that's why he prepared so well. Yeah. Because with that much preparation, you, you're able to have that bit of that amount of freedom. Yeah. But uh, even, while filming. even even after filming, he edited the movie together and didn't like it. Cut out thirty minutes of the film, restructured it entirely. Um, these are not the behaviors of a a person who is um, a perfectionist who. Uh, you know, I mean, you compare that to something like um, Hitchcock, who treated actors like cattle and uh, literally said that and um, storyboarded every single thing to the finest detail, um, basically had everything in mind. Or Ozu, who um, knew exactly how many seconds each uh, shot would last and each line of dialogue would last um, to the point where his scripts and his finished film came out exactly the same in terms of running. He was able to predict the running time of his films down to about a minute. Um, I guess I'm wondering sort of how that fits into the perception of Kubrick and um, where that kind of puts him in terms of uh, kind of how he should be viewed as a director. I think you're right. I think uh, I came into this watch like literally into this watching of the film and researching dr strangelove thinking that at least it's um, i think at least after the killing um that kubrick was a guy that he was an evil genius could visualize every single shot everything was hyper controlled and even and what's interesting is so you know famous for taking many takes you know 30 40 takes um but what you realize from, and you know, he's a master chess player and can see 12 moves ahead and blah, blah, blah. But what you realize from watching this is that all of those things are true, but that didn't actually, but what it allowed for him was that improvisation. Uh, it allowed for him to make changes on the fly, and it did allow him to be a chess player where a chess player has to adapt to the person he's playing against. And so the movie unfolds, and this is a movie where you're absolutely right. Uh, I 100% agree with you, Matt, where this is a totally different movie from the final script. This is a totally different movie from the rough cut. And they basically didn't discover the movie that you have until they finished editing it. They didn't know what the movie was until they were done with the movie. There were scenes that were left on the cutting room floor. Different characters were going to, were supposed to be played different ways. And you know, there's, yeah, I totally agree. This is, this tells us that Kubrick's genius was not just in the geometry that he built into the uh, the different shots, the sty- the hyper like stylized view. Uh, it wasn't just that; it was also his ability to work with actors, his ability to uh, you know to improvise with the material that he has, like to use the inspiration of the moment. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of that comes from. You know his process is so in, in, uh, exacting until the point of filming, and then you hear about all these he did thousands, hundreds, and hundreds of takes. Well, and I think that was to develop what the scene's going to be and to develop the performance and get the performance where it wants to go. But that didn't mean he didn't collaborate with the actors to achieve that performance. I think he he very much was a collaborative person. I mean, he you read a lot of the stuff of of people who've worked with him in the past, and he did. He was very open to ideas and thoughts and expressions that would help um, make the film as as good as it could be. Because 
why hire these people unless you're going to trust them or listen to them? You know, it's like that's that's uh, you know, anathema to what you're trying, what a, the collaboration of making films is. And I think the other thing is, is that he was exacting because a lot of his money sometimes went into these things or a lot of his time because he produced them after a while by himself. Um, a lot of these things were the exacting and... Uh, robotic Kubrick were, were things that were involved in the public the publication or the advertisement of his films, making sure that they were shown the right way, making sure that his advertisements uh, were actually he was paying for the space and they were ripping them off on on the size of his uh, of copy that he was paying for. So he was like calling these uh, you know these newspapers and saying, "Listen, I bought fourteen by fifteen size space. You gave me a thirteen by sixteen. Like that's that's not what I want. That's not what I paid for. Give me my exact space that I paid for." And he became very exacting that way. Um, and I think you know excising the pie scene from this movie. If he really felt that it turned it from satire to the absurd, then or wacky, then it's not. He's losing his message at the end, and I think that's part of why you know, as fun as that would be to see that giant war room pie fight, if it takes away from the narrative, then it needs to be cut out and it needs to be jettisoned from the film. And I think people hear those things and focus on it as him being like dictator in terms of what he wants and what he has to have as opposed to someone who is really working hard at making something uh, a, a finished product that is that is uh, as best as it can possibly be. Yeah, I totally I was just agree. To, oh, go ahead, John. Can I, I just want to finish off two things. One, completely agree. The 100, you know, the, if he takes 40 shots, people, I always thought it was because he wanted to get exactly the shot he had in mind, where actually it was... He wanted essentially 40 different versions so that he could piece them together Mm -hmm. at the end. I didn't get that. Now I understand that. The second point is I also did not realize until researching this movie that Kubrick's genius wasn't just in how to shoot a film or how to script a film. It was also in how to sell a film. And and I think, uh, you know, he had full control, I think, over the advertisement. Of, yeah. uh, of of this of Doctor Strangelove and really was innovative in how that advertisement worked. He also was the guy who devised the legal strategy of trying to get failsafe to to have a delayed release so that it didn't compete for. So he's a guy who maybe he isn't like completely controlling like a, a you know a master of marionettes on the film set to some extent maybe he is but he's you know doing a lot of project management as well. But I think some of that. Um, total control stuff comes through in that he wants he wants involvement he wants say in all of the elements of making the movie and he's clearly good at that yeah i think a lot of people who are assholes in the movie industry uh hide behind the idea that they are simply interested in producing a good product and they don't care about anything else but it does feel very accurate for Kubrick and I almost wonder if maybe that is something that you know people have used as a model moving forward in a negative way you know they they don't understand that um, this truly was who he was he was mostly if not entirely concerned with producing not just producing a movie that um, 
is exactly what he wanted or is the best possible movie that he could make. But also distributing, marketing, exhibiting, and receiving a movie in the best possible light. I mean, that collaboration extended to uh, the viewer uh, in in the movie theater. And, you know, he uh, there's, there's even some notes uh, from him to fans who wrote in uh, praising the film where he wrote back asking how the rest of the audience in the theater received the movie. So, I mean, the idea that you would not just be interested in hearing from whoever is ta- whoever you're talking to, some random person who wrote you a letter, but that you're also interested in what the people who happened to be in the theater that day thought of the movie, it really reflects just how focused he was on um, how his films were received. And, and for whatever reason, you know, whether that was simply just so that he could go out and make um, more movies or if it was because he wanted to be loved or whatever, I'm not in his brain, but it, it, it's very clear that it was important to him that his movies get made the, the way that he wanted them to get made and that they were received well um, by the people that he was trying to connect with. Yeah, no, and I don't, there's no fault in that, you know, you can take it however you want, but that's pretty admirable in terms of making sure that your thing that you've worked so hard on doesn't just flounder away and wasted like so many movies of that time were, you know, people worked hard on making these movies and like a studio would just say, yeah. nah, we're going to shelf this. And that was it. You All your hard work and everything you worked towards was just uh, shelved. And you had nothing nothing you could do, no legal action you could take. And he worked hard on making sure that he had full control over everything. And that's you know, something a lot of directors have tried to do and have won, has succeeded. Or sometimes you know, have failed miserably at doing that and end up working for the studios the rest of their yeah, lives. Yeah, and I compare him to, to Woody Allen... Um, in a way is kind of like the opposite sides you know Woody Allen was somebody who is somebody who makes a movie every year put puts it basically you know slaps it together in editing and literally never looks at it again doesn't care how it's received by the audience doesn't isn't interested in awards and in marketing and anything doesn't have any sort of you know behind the scenes or discussion about his work he's got a few interviews that he's done just you know talking about the process of making his movies um that has resulted in a wildly uneven career because you know he's not put, putting everything into every movie that he makes <laughs> he is a lazy yeah. filmmaker and his talent gets him through and every once in a while he you know strikes lightning less so in the last 20 or 30 years but um you know it, it's uh it's definitely like a uh, there's a huge gap in, in terms of, of the style of, of working there. And I think that's not just reflected in the, their out, their con- the consistency of their output, but in how much their films matter in the, the film culture at large. You know, that starting with this movie, every single movie that Kubrick made, perhaps with the exception of Eyes Wide Shut, has been... Uh, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, in an iconic film that sort of changed the way that people looked at that genre. And I think that is 
not just because of the movies that he made, but because of the fact that he was thinking about how they were going to be received. Yeah. And I would argue that the reason why Eyes Wide Shut didn't live up to that, because he wasn't alive to complete the vision all the way out to the marketing, the release, the final cuts. Right. Good point. No, I agree. All right. Well, um, John, uh, as I think you know, we are um, ranking these films uh, as we go through them. And uh, you're going to get to uh, rank them, uh, rank them along with us, but you get to rank all of them. Oh, okay. I actually, oh, I get to rank all of them? You get to, yeah. Well, you can, you can tell us okay. how, where, where like Strange it. Love place in, places in your kind of overall perception of Kubrick's films. Uh, got it, got but, it. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start with Travis. Travis, um, this is Dr. Strange Love. Where, where would you put all it? All right, here we go. So we have Fear and Desire. Lolita, Killer's Kiss, Spartacus, The Killing, Pass of Glory, and taking over the number one spot, Dr. Strangelove. I think think that this movie does all the things that Pass of Glory does, except uses the humor to drive the point home more, whereas Pass of Glory does have lots of message. And, uh, you know, I talked earlier about that whole idea of sometimes being direct with a message or being very forward with a message can sometimes turn people off from receiving a message. Whereas this message in this film is very, very much accepted a lot more because of the humor that it has and because there's so many questions left unanswered. I think this kind of pulls it forward. And like, like we've said, I think this is the... He is now fully put on his Kubrickian suit of armor, and he's going to march forward through the next rest of his career with as much gusto and uh, competence as he is ever going to muster. You know, I think this is the one. So it's taken over number one spot. So this is getting interesting because we are we are really um, starting to. Um sort of separate in our lists. We were very close uh, initially. Yeah. Um, but uh, I am going to slot this a shade below Paths of Glory. So this is my number two okay. on the list. I agree with you that um, the message elements of Paths of Glory kind of make this movie a little bit more uh, both Kubrickian and uh, sophisticated. But Paths of Glory, to me, is uh, the, the emotion of that film, and I think uh, just the pure experience of watching it is so uh, moving to me and um, works entirely for me. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm just overwhelmed by that film when I watch it. Yeah. And I think. Oh, and don't get me wrong. Yeah, like it's not like I'm. No, like, no, no, no. I know, mean, this is Doctor. We're we're dealing in the we're dealing yeah, between the yeah. two. <laughs> we're dealing in the in the stratosphere at this point. So yes, um, exactly. But yeah, I mean, I, I think this is still a great movie, and I I love it. Um, and it's a very important movie, sort of in my life and movie watching career. Um, I don't laugh at it as much as I used to. I'm more marvel mm. at it now, and I think uh, that kind of brings it down a shade for me from where it used to be uh because this used to be sort of one of my very very favorite films uh and it still is i mean i'd still rank it up there but um yeah i'm gonna go with paths of glory 
John, what what is your favorite Kubrick movie? Uh, if you had to pick one, and sort of where does Doctor Strangelove fit within that? Sure. So it's close. And I I don't know if we've talked about this before, Matt. I think we have, but it's close between uh, Paths of Glory and Barry Lyndon. And I think Barry Lyndon wins. Paths of Glory moves me so much, but Barry Lyndon is so successful in my eyes. I just think it's like, it's one of those, it's one of those works of art where you just think like, how did a human being make that? I think it's so perfect. Um, uh, similar to, I think like East of Eden, whenever I read uh, the first few chapters of East of Eden by John Steinbeck, I just think how on earth did a human being write these words in this order? Um, uh, that's the same way I feel about Barry Lyndon. So I would say Barry Lyndon one, Paths of Glory a close number two. Um, I have to unfortunately leave out 2001 and Full Metal Jacket because it's been so long since I've seen them. So I need to revisit them to figure out where they uh, figure in my ranking. I have a shocker at number three. Uh, Lolita is my number oh. three. And in fact, I put it really close to Passive Glory. I think that if I rewatch all of these movies, I think Lolita may have a very high ranking for me. So, um, but that's a discussion for another time. And then Dr. Strangelove. Right now, Dr. Strangelove sits right behind Lolita. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, Dr. Strangelove. Um, that, was, uh, that was fun. Thank you, John, for coming on and uh, talking about nuclear annihilation with us a little bit. <laughs> Travis, Matt, you guys are uh, you guys are some of the people that have welcomed me into this uh, film podcasting and just the the whole uh, uh, our little our little movie fa- uh, not fan world but yeah our movie fan world and you guys have just been great so uh, terrific to talk to you guys about about a movie that I a movie that I love as mu- as painful as it can be it's a painful love yeah but it yes. is a genuine love. Well, it's always fun having you, John. It's always fun to talk to you. I've always enjoyed our conversation, so thanks. And hopefully we'll uh, be on a podcast uh, again someday, um, assuming that we don't all die in a, a nuclear war. So, Well, don't worry, Matt. We always have the future to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Segway! Oh, segway. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, you gave it away, Travis. Next time is... A pretty big one, I would say. I mean, I don't know. Maybe some people would would say this isn't that that well known of a movie, but uh, two thousand one Space Odyssey. It's kind of a big deal. What do you think, Travis? You ready? You know, we've been preparing ourselves for this moment this whole time we've been talking about it. So, I think I'm ready to take the plunge. I'm ready to throw that bone in the sky and see where it lands. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen this movie since uh, I saw it at the Egyptian in L.A. 15 years ago, probably. Um, I don't know why, but I just I think it's mostly just because it's 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 not meant to be seen on a small screen. So um, I'll, I'll try. I, I might try to get to the, the theatrical screening, but we'll see if that actually happens. All right. Well, complete for another week. All right. Talk to you then. <laughs>